Well, maybe stop with that whole life thing and start watching more movies. Radio Drome. Welcome to another episode of Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. With me, as always, is Rape Ape from Canada. <laughs> that's right. That's that's all he gets is a giggly laughter. And yeah, and it's it's a rainy day. I'm I'm tired. I the wit is not turned on today. The wit would be turned on, except Cecil didn't do his homework for tonight's episode, so I don't know what he's going to have to talk about. Uh, life has a tendency of getting in the way of things. It does. You know what could help you get through life? AdamandEve.com. Go to AdamandEve.com, use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping. Just use the promo code DROME at AdamandEve.com. We don't normally do this where we just talk about, like, a movie, but we're going to talk about the new movie Skeletons in the Closet, which is the one Cecil didn't watch. But at least Peter watched it. I certainly did. Skeletons in the Closet is a new movie that, at the date we're recording this, just came out on VOD, and hopefully we'll have a DVD and Blu-ray release soon, but just came out on VOD. It's a throwback 80s anthology film, but it's... It's a little more meta than that because it's an anthology film where the characters are watching other characters watch an anthology film. So it's sort of a commentary on this sort of thing. Cecil, since you didn't watch the movie, I don't know what you can add to this, but Peter, you watched it. It's it's kind of weirdly meta without being snide about it, isn't it? It is. It felt, other than a few of the segments, um, or one segment in particular, it did feel pretty genuinely 80s. The mood in particular that I could compare it to is it felt a lot like something like the video dead. It felt like that very kind of direct-to-video 80s horror kind of stuff. The setup is Elena Kramer is Jamie, a little, an 11-year-old girl who is infatuated with a horror host show called Skeletons in the Closet, hosted by The Widow and her dead husband. They watch a movie, and that's where the anthology stuff comes in. So we're watching Jamie and her babysitter watch skeletons in the closet and they are watching an anthology film called chop shop you you Mm. get multiple levels here cecil do you think you regret not watching this because life got in the way well i mean i wanted to watch it it was no it was through no fault of the film it wasn't like i'm like oh this looks like a piece of crap i'm not gonna watch it it's just i had time allotted for watching it and unfortunately uh some like real life drama happened and i just didn't have a chance to watch it i mean things are uh very busy in my my world no excuses and uh it's not excuses. It's just the truth. But I'm saying, so I am sad that I didn't get to watch it because I always like checking out uh, new things. Uh, and uh, uh, we we don't get very many good anthologies anymore. I think recently we've been getting more 
there's kind of been an uptick, I think, since like Trick or Treat. You know, then we got Tales of Halloween and we got the VHS series. And it seems like there's been an uptick in like good to better anthologies. But there was a time there. There was a dark time where they and any anthology that was coming out was just terrible. Director Ben Lewandowski told me that they kind of the the, the distributors kind of wanted them to hide in the trailers that this was an anthology, maybe because of that very thing that they kind of wanted to maybe cloak it a little bit and not say it's an anthology film, even though it is. I, I mm. think there might have been some fallout from that dark time you spoke of. And it's very possible. So, Peter, since you watched the movie, what are your thoughts on the film as a whole? I I feel like it had it had a consistent look and quality to it for the most part, at least in terms of the the babysitter scene, the Channel Thirteen stuff, which was really funny, by the way. I really liked that a lot. Just anytime that they, they would introduce it, like we're boring, so you don't have to be Channel Thirteen. Yeah, like all these like little <laughs> little things in the background, um, of like the the news host and the the actual channel themselves, and and the widow, which was very very you could tell that was very very much like Elvira. It it had that cheap but sincere direct to eighties uh, direct to video eighties horror kind of vibe to it. The segments were really great, except for one, which was um the dismantler. I forget what it was called, but it was the hmm? dismantler. I think it was the dismantler. Yeah, that one was like the, these two crooks who pull a heist and then they get like trapped in this uh, junkyard and they get stalked by some supernatural serial killer. Kind of looks like the exterminator. And that one could have been cool, but for some reason it was shot and edited like a Marcus Nispel Platinum Dunes horror movie. I don't know why they did that. I don't know why it had all the little quick zoom ups and the shaky cam and the very like you said it was black and white. Whereas I actually noticed it was not black and white. It was desaturated and like teal. At least that's what it looked like on my TV. I found that to be really disappointing because I feel like that could have been a cool segment had it actually been shot like a 70s or an 80s kind of grindhouse movie. But everything else was really good. I really enjoyed the actual horror hosts like the the widow and the the dead husband i thought were were hilarious the husband in particular i thought was really really funny i loved his um i loved his like zombie mask makeup stuff it looked very again very much like something out of the video dead then obviously there was kind of a dynamic between the two of them it was almost like a married with children kind of thing where he he's always like uh shooing her advances away and stuff and there's also the the funny part of it that you know, she she killed him, and now now that he's dead, she seems to, to like him more than than uh, she did when he was alive. She also, um, I like that a lot. Uh, the widow also kind of me too's his corpse a little bit. She has sex with the corpse in the movie, and he's mm. not exactly willing. But being dead, he can't fight. He's back, not into so it. I don't know if that's a me too commentary or just something that's meant to be <laughs> sickly funny. I think it was. Uh, let, let's not go all Jamie Lee Curtis on this, okay? <laughs> I, I think she just did that because it was a necrophilia joke. I think that's just what they were going for. She's lols, she's kind of corpse. Like that's pretty much it. Overall, I really liked it. it the, the movie went by very quick. I enjoyed the character interactions. The, the babysitter and the, the little girl had a good dynamic. There's also like a running subplot through the movie over, over the news that there's like an escaped serial killer from a mental hospital. So you've got little, little nods to Halloween and slumber party massacre in there as well. It was very good. I, I really liked it over. And Cecil, since you didn't see it, I'm just going to say, you, you you know Ellie Church, right? The actress? Yeah. She plays the widow. You tell me that she's not perfect as the widow. Since Peter's already seen it, you know Ellie Church. I actually think she's a really underrated actress. No, she was very good. 
Yeah, she's very like just un- not used nearly as much as she should be. Um, yeah, I could see. I I really want to see this. I hope to check it out soon. Well, and then the the guys who made this also made another movie, which we only have a trailer for it right now, called High on the Hog. It's a Sid Haig, Joe Estevez, Robert Zadar movie. Now, like I said, we only have a trailer. Pete, you watched the trailer for this. I really want to see the High on the Hog, don't you? No, that looks very fun. I mean, anytime you mention that Sid Haig is going to be in anything, just that in itself is kind of motivation to see it. Because even if the movie might end up being shit, he always puts in an effort. And also, there's something about Joe Estevez that will draw me into a movie as well. Like, that guy is... I don't know what it is about him, but something makes me kind of chuckle. Um, I guess it's the fact that he looks so much like Martin Sheen and he's in like a movie like eight times a year. Like I think <laughs> that guy probably, I think he works like more than any other working actor today and he consistently yeah. always gives a shit even though it's kind of hilarious. Well, the trailer for High on the Hog looks really fun. You know, it's, it's got that whole pot no, farmers. No, it does. It, it really has the, that the, um, the, drive-in, yeah. like very drive-in 70s kind of look to it. I was almost going to say it's it's a bit Devil's Rejects-y, but honestly, Rob Zombie is just aping the 70s drive-in stuff too, so I'm not going to compare it to a new movie. I'm not going to give it a, a speed two, but with a bus commentary. Um, It, it looks like it's... Obviously, the movie we watched was very much meant to be 80s-centric. This one looks like it's very 70s-centric, and it looks very well, fun. Supposedly, we're getting a screener once that movie's actually completed. They've completed shooting, but they're still in post and whatnot on that. So we'll talk more about High on the Hog in another episode, I'm, I'm guessing. For now, mm. I spoke to one of the directors of Skeletons in the Closet, Ben Lewandowski, and he's got a lot of background information to give on that, High on the Hog, and a movie nobody's ever heard of and probably shouldn't that they kind of worked on. There's an asterisk there. He'll explain that. The Rake. Tell us where Skeletons in the Closet came from. I mean, the idea, the genesis of it. Well, I'll tell you, this is a, the answer to this question is going to be a um, master's class in what they call a uh, passion project or a labor of love because it took us a long time to get this this movie off the ground. February of 2012, I had decided I wanted to put together a team for an anthology film. I knew that VHS was 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 hitting Park City, so I knew that was going to be a, become a um a hot commodity soon. Well, I mean, I I shouldn't say that I I knew that, but I guessed it. So I'm like, "All right, I want to jump on this bandwagon right away." So, I at almost I don't want to say it random, but I found four of the most notable Chicago indie horror directors, guys that I knew they could put short films together well. Sent them all emails. First one that got back to me, Tony Wash. He's the um, he's my co-editor, co-producer, co-writer, co-editor on Skeletons in the Closet. He's the first one that got back to me, and uh, we had a phone conversation when I was in L.A. in March 2012. We started to put together the building blocks for what would become Chop Shop. It was Tony, myself, and two other filmmakers. Memorial Day 2012, Tony had already started shooting what would what would become his short, Grandma O'Malley's Pantry. We started shooting Dismantler that June as well as the two other films. So let me fast forward. We get into 2013, we finish the Chop Shop Bridge, and we finish Dismantler. Dismantler, by the way, started shooting June 2012. We finished in December of 2013. Took us a long time to make that movie. That was not an easy film. So we started getting the post and uh, we needed to change some things. Uh, we needed two of the other filmmakers to make some concessions, edit their films down a little bit. And of course, Tony and I had to too. Turned out that just wasn't a good fit. So we lost two of our filmmakers. And unfortunately, as you can see in the finished product, Tony's film and my film are inseparable because of 
some of the characters are interchangeable, namely Tank Top, Casey, and of course, the mom. So Tony and I knew we had to stay together. Our films just could not be separated because we had debated that at one point. We're like, you know what? We're going to sit on this for a while. And then, of course, other projects came in to be. World of Death came in. High in the Hog came in. The Rake came about. I'm a professional editor. So in the time from the inception of this project to its release, I've probably worked on 50 other films. So then we get into 2017. And actually, this would be late 2016. Tony starts to put together this idea for new content called Skeletons in the Closet, which can, which is basically about Elvira-esque TV host named The Widow and her dead husband, Charlie. And they have this terrible late night horror show where they watch bad movies. And it's, of course, on Channel 13. The other, the other uh, half of, of Tony's idea was this other story called Killers in the House where you have this precocious 11-year-old girl named Jamie and her babysitter. And Jamie's favorite thing to do on Friday night, her most favorite thing in the world, is the widow and her show, Skeletons in the Closet. And as you know from watching the film, you do not get between Jamie and her show. We shot these in early 2017. We put them all together. The end result is an 80s retro horror anthology. And as one critic said about a month ago, it's actually, if you think about it, an anthology inside of an anthology. Because we're watching a television show in one of the movies, and inside of that television show is a movie with other movies. When you really think about it, you know, I guess suppose your head could explode because it's it's very meta. It's very, very meta. And, you know, we blur the lines between what's real and what isn't. And like I said to you earlier, this is definitely a movie you have to watch more than once. After several viewings, you'll be able you'll be able to piece together how all the puzzle pieces fit. I don't think it's that apparent on first viewing because it's so batshit. But after a couple viewings, it all does come together pretty cohesively. But like I said, it's going to take more than uh, more than one viewing. So that's that's the inception of this movie. It took us six years to get to this point. A cast and crew of almost ninety. It's shockingly. Not particularly expensive, especially considering the the budgets of what they call a, a, a micro budget now. When you add up all the sweat equity from from us that have put that have that have that have put time into this, it's millions. <laughs> I, I want to go back to that budget thing for a moment. Now you don't have to tell us how much it costs, but anyone who's listened to this show before knows I have a big problem with low budget films that don't care. That, you know, like the Justin Prices out there who just make crap and then go, well, it's indie. You have to respect it. And you go, no, it's still garbage and you didn't try. When I watch Skeletons in the Closet, I do have one caveat later. You, you know, you and I have talked on the phone about one of the segments I did not like the camera work in. The movie does not feel cheap. It doesn't feel like you shot this in a house. It doesn't feel like you shot it in someone's backyard like like a Justin Price movie would. The movie has nice colors. It's got good editing for the most part. Feels like a film. And that, I think, is a big compliment towards you that even though this was a micro-budget film, it doesn't feel like a red box piece of crap. You know, we got very lucky on Skeletons, and I'll tell you why. We were working with a lot of people that had yet to break out into the professional ranks. A lot of the people that worked on this are now working professionals in the industry. Our director of photography, Robert Patrick Stern, he just, he worked on Slice, for example. You know, he is a professional DP. He does a lot of very, very expensive commercial work, does a lot of movies, set decorators, production designers. We had a host 
of extremely talented musicians. I remember when you and I were talking and you're like, is this temp? And I'm like, no, this is all original. We had amazing composers on this. We had amazing VFX artists on this. Steve Verdino, who's the right side of my brain. He takes all of my bad ideas and he makes them great. I mean, all of the people that worked on this are exceptional at what they do. And we got lucky. I'm going to be honest with you. We got real lucky. Tony and I were able to put together, well, this, this, this amazing team of people, you know, some of which are vastly more talented than I am, put them all together and we just let them run. And, and, and I'll tell you, man, they, they won race after race. I mean, there isn't a single person uh, on this film for the most part that's just not working in some phase of the movie industry right now. And that's what did it. You just had a, a huge cadre of just extremely gifted filmmakers. And that's what it takes. You can have a million dollars. You can have a million dollar budget. But if you don't have truly talented people, what difference does it make? You know, if you take nothing, nothing is better than than ingenuity. And I'll tell you, man, when your back is to the wall and you have no money, you are forced. You are forced to be a creative. You know, it just forces out that 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 creativity that, that that's normally not there when you have resources, because let's face it, you tend to get a little lazy. You know, when you can throw money at something, when you don't have that option, you have no choice but to develop high degrees of ingenuity and, and, and this movie is a result of that. So like I said, a, a lot of it is skill, but a, a lot of it is just, we just got lucky because we were able to put together a team that was, that was exceptional. I also think one of the things is, I mean, with Jamie being the little girl in the framing sequence that, you know, we keep popping in and out of. So she's throughout the entire movie. Eleni Karner does a great job because one of the things that I've often hated when you see a little kid, I think she's supposed to be like, what, 10 or 12 in the movie? And 11. Is where you clearly have adults writing for children. I'm sure you've seen that in lots of TV shows and movies where you're like, this kid doesn't act like a damn kid. Jamie acts like a kid. Oh, slightly psychotic kid, sure, but she actually acts like an 11-year-old girl. Well, here's the amazing part. There's two people in this film that were making their... Film debuts. Laney was one of them. And Adam Michaels, who plays Charlie, this was also his, this was his, this was his acting debut. They both knock it out of the park. Laney's the most impressive because of her age. But I'll tell you, I will give a lot of credit to Tony. Of all the directors I've worked with, and there have been many over the years, he's very, very good at casting. Very good at casting. And, and she is amazing in this. She really is. I mean, even if she wasn't, I'm going to tell you that, but I can, I can tell you from the most sincere depths of my heart, she is not only very, very believable, but she's also, she's very charming and she's very devious and she's very precocious and she's very intelligent. And she's only in the movie for 20 minutes. It's exceptional, you know? It really is. I think she has an amazing career uh, ahead of her. Interestingly enough, she's also in the Adam Krauss, John Potter film Gags, which is due out for release later this year or early 2019. She also has a, a, a small part in that film as well. So she's she's just starting, you know? Well, and then I think Ellie Church also, you know, as the widow, she, she brings, it's, it's not like an Elvira type quality, but it's what, what if Elvira were actually played without morals? <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. I think when, when Tony first pitched that to the group, he said, I want to do, I want to do Alan Peg Bundy and I want to do Elvira and I want to do Tales from the Crypt and I want to put them into a blender. And Ellie, Ellie is a very, very special actress, and I'll tell you why. She has a reputation as a scream queen. But I'll tell you, she can pull off a lot. It's deceptive. She really can. 
I think she's actually capable of a lot more. I'm interested to see what happens when someone brings her a, a more dramatic role because I think she could nail it. I just I don't even think she knows her potential. And see, that's what I was talking about earlier. That's another reason that I, I think I think fan, horror fans especially will, will like this movie. The performances in this film, for the most part, are very, very good. They're very, very good. They're 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 consistent and they're fun. And they're scary all at the same time. I think everybody across the board in this is is damn good. Yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed the movie. I mean, like I said, you and I talked on the phone. There was the camera work in The Dismantler. Just it really bothered me. And I saw some other reviews online. They didn't like that either. Th- that that bug bugged me, but that's my really only real complaint about the movie. Well, that was kind of the point. When we first shot the Chop Shop film, it was important that all four movies looked differently. So when re- me and Rob went to go uh, work on that, I said, look, let's do this like an action film. Let's shoot it like a Paul Greengrass action film. And that's exactly what we did. You know, when we had the screening, we had some of the, we had some of the same, I, they weren't, they weren't criticisms. They're like, two people came up to me and they said, look, I don't know what this says about this, but I was nauseous and thought I was going to leave. I'm like, you know what? That's actually a positive review if a horror film makes somebody nauseous and they have to leave. I mean, hell, remember when Blair Witch came out? They were posting those in the New York Times. I'm just saying, like, the camera work on that one I thought was a little weird. But I do agree each segment looks different. The, the movie is a is a retro film. It takes place in the 80s. And, and I think for the most part it nails it. I mean, you know, the, the newscaster would not have been widescreen then, as you and I have talked about. But other than that, I think he did a pretty good job nailing the 80s aesthetic. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, we talked about that. I didn't want to pull off an A24. I didn't want to go four by three only because that's one thing that's been a consistent variable in a lot of these retro films is reverting to four by three. But you're totally right. And the fact that you caught that shows to me that not only are you paying attention, but you know your shit. So don't worry. That's not a uh, that's not a criticism at all. A criticism would be and I've gotten reviews like this where they're uh, a critic will say, you know what? Next time you make a movie like this, you should uh, jump off of a tall building. Now, that's a criticism. Although I'll be honest with you, that that review was actually very positive because I'll never forget it and it consistently makes me laugh. So if that's as bad as it's going to get, I'm in good shape. <laughs> well, you mentioned earlier High on the Hog. Now, obviously, this is, you know, this is Ellie Church is in that as well. Now, I've only seen the trailer. Um, I know the movie's not out for screeners yet, but that's your, I mean, the movie's done, but it's your next film. High on the Hog looks fantastic, honestly. I'm I'm literally only going off the trailer, but I'm really looking forward to this one. What can you tell people about High on the Hog, this, despite the fact that I haven't seen it yet? Well, I can tell you right now, if you liked the trailer, then you better buckle up because you ain't seen nothing yet. I mean, High in the Hog is wow. It's High in the Hair. Let me let me start at the beginning. High in the Hog is written and produced by a good friend of mine named Kevin Lockhart. It's directed by the Skeletons co-director Tony Wash. And basically what it is, it's what I like to call retro grindhouse. It's a modernized version of an aesthetic that died out in the 1970s. A lot of the editorial gimmicks, some of them will will seem familiar to you, but then they're they're modernized. But basically what Hog is, it's a crime thriller and comedy drama and it's Sid a- Haig running a pot farm with a bunch of quote family members which are all pretty girls. Yes, I mean it. It has it has its it has its roots in exploitation, but yeah, that's exactly what it is. Sid Haig is a pot farmer who is 
struggling to support his family and he's getting pressure from the DTA and the DTA agent uh, uh, in this case is played by Joe Estevez, who is fantastic in this, by the way. I'm almost convinced that this might actually be the comeback vehicle for, for Joe Estevez, but that's another that's another story. And what happens basically in the film is his family, Sid Hagen and his family, are put at odds against uh, against this government agency. So not only is it a pot movie, it also has a lot of political undertones as well. And I'm I'm fairly certain it's going to be controversial because, like I said, there is a lot of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. There are a lot of political angles, but it's also, in, at least in my opinion, this is how I built it. It's it's satirical in many ways too. So I don't think people should take it too seriously. It's just a fun movie. It's exactly what we were talking about. We were talking about Predator, and the reason I didn't like it, the new Predator, by the way. We were talking about this before we started doing the interview, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We won't even get back into it. Yeah, but High in the Hog is the very embodiment of a fun, fun movie. When is that due out? Uh, it's a good, that's a good question. Um, that, that film was bought by Indican Pictures out in LA and it looks like they are eyeballing a fall release. So we are anxiously awaiting news on that. The last time I talked to Kevin, it looks like they were, they were gunning for uh, a window around Halloween. I'm thinking it's probably going to be a little bit past that, but I'm fairly certain that's going to be out in the, in the late fall. Skeletons is a very Wisconsin movie. You have Wisconsin references. It takes place in Wisconsin. Why was it set in Wisconsin, I guess? Because my question would be, you're obviously from Wisconsin, as I am. What made you want to Wisconsinize this movie? The reason that you're saying it was filmed in Wisconsin because of the uh, the news footage, right? Yeah, because I, I believe like the the Escape Maniac is from uh, Appleton. Yeah, we did we did that on purpose. Basically, it's not necessarily set in Wisconsin or Illinois. We just wanted to give it we wanted to give it a a Midwest vibe. And since a lot of the people that worked on the film either lived or worked in Wisconsin and Illinois, we decided to split hairs and just go right down the middle. So it's not really that's really your only clue. That that's where it takes place. By the way, you're the only person that's caught that. Well, that's because I live very close to Appleton, <laughs> so I, I noticed that immediately. Uh, you know what? I would love to ask Johnny Five, the screenwriter, exactly, or actually, that that may have been Tony that interjected that. Um, I I want to say that 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 information is intentionally vague because it could have taken place anywhere in the Midwest. Because I remember initially there was a debate about when I was doing the Channel 13 voiceover actually telling the audience exactly where we were. And then I don't remember if I just vetoed that myself or we did that as a group, but we decided to keep it vague. But I'm, I'm glad you caught that. See, I told you, man, no one's paid attention to this like you have. My, my girlfriend says that's a detriment how close I pay attention to movies. No, that not at all. Watching movies with me is sometimes a chore. But now that Skeletons has had its premiere in Chicago, I think the week before we record this, what is next for it? When does Skeletons come out? Because obviously by the time the audience starts to hear this, it won't quite be out yet. Uh, transactional VOD through Cowlamp Films is going to, is going to begin on VOD platforms in the middle of October. I want to say, I believe it's October 15th. And then it'll start to open up to larger VOD markets. Our plan is to have this puppy on Blu-ray for conventions. Before we hit Days of the Dead, Schaumburg, Illinois, where incidentally Sid Haig will be. We should be promoting High on the Hog at that same time, by the way. Um, we should have that on Blu-ray by the time we hit mid-November to late November. 
The DVD of Skeletons in the Closet should be available approaching the end of October. I believe October 15th is the, is the beginning of the, of the push for transactional VOD, which means you should be able to start getting it or at least appearing on platforms such as, you know, pay platforms. Right now, since you're still in the promotional phase, when the trailer first came out, which is when I saw that trailer, it just popped into my YouTube feed for something. And I remember I watched the trailer and I reached out to you guys. What kind of reaction did you get from the trailer? The reaction of the trailer was all over the place. We got a lot of obviously, obviously the first thing that hits when you put something live is the haters come out of the woodwork. So we, of course, got criticized for attempting to rip off uh, Stranger Things, even though both Tony and I have debated doing a film like this before that. But that being said, we got nailed that for that a little bit. But for the most part, people were generally very, very positive. I think they liked the freshness of it. They liked the speed of it. They liked the fact that nothing else looks like that right now. And yes, you can tell it's independent. There's no doubt about it. But that's also part of its charm, I think, too. So for the most part, when you put a trailer out there, even if it's a studio film, you're going to get nailed across the board. I, I always tell younger filmmakers or people that are just coming up, I'm like, look, you put something out that goes out in the public eye, you're going to get criticized for it. And sometimes you're just going to get outright crucified. But no, I, I was actually surprised at how positive it was for the most part. People really have responded to the 80s throwback. Especially people in our age bracket. Little people that are younger obviously aren't gonna really understand the nostalgia, but those that do have appreciated it. Then what, uh, I've seen some reviews and whatnot out there. Uh, obviously I haven't read every review, but I've run across a couple. What's the critical response so far from both the premiere and obviously the screener copies you've sent out? Uh, it's been very, very positive. People have really appreciated the aesthetic. They've appreciated the creativity and the originality of it. It's rare to see a movie like this. It's just that, cause like, like I said earlier, not only did we make an anthology film, but we made an anthology film in an, in an anthology film. And it's, it's, it's multifaceted and it's, and like I said, it's very, very meta. It's very layered movie. So it's, 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 it seems very simple because it's only 80 minutes. But when you really, really think about it, when you start to bridge the gaps between the films, because they're all interconnected, it's actually a very, very complex film. And we did that relatively quickly with, like I said, the only real resource we had was just human ingenuity. So, so the reviews have been good. I think, I think a lot of people have gravitated toward it. When we did, when we showed the, the, the film to the, the public on the 7th in Chicago for the first time, I was actually very, very surprised how funny people thought the film was. I mean, I knew there was laughs. I didn't realize there was that many laughs. So then what's next for you after this? I mean, obviously High on the Hog's already finished, so I, I don't mean like that, but what is next for you? Well, the first thing that, that we're doing is we're trying to get, we're trying to get skeletons to be picked up as a television show. That's number one. Number two is we're eyeballing the release of, of the Sid Haig film High on the Hog. Uh, number three, a film I cut for a director named Greg Dixon. Uh, I'm actually leaving next week to screen a film called Olympia at the L.A. Film Festival. And then we're screening that at the prestigious Chicago International Film Festival in October. That is a big deal for me because, like, since film school, I, I've always, I always joked that I, I told people, look, if I get a movie in the SIF, I'm going to retire. That's obviously not going to happen. But I've got another movie uh, that I'm cutting that starts um, later this year. And then I'm actually writing uh, a new film with my wife, which obviously I can't. I can't tell you much about, but uh, I'm eyeballing going back in the director's chair sometime in, in 2019. And then, like I said previous, you know, I'm a, I'm a professional editor, so I, I work on a lot of projects. 
So you just never know. You never know what's coming on my desk. Uh, I've got a couple of got a couple of projects that uh, that I've got right now that are that, that should be out in the next two three months. I wish I wish I could say the rest of the year was slowing down, but I'll be honest with you, I think it's going to speed up. Well, Ben, you also worked on another movie, The Rake, and this one is a little bit more of a contentious thing. I, I recently watched it, and I really don't want to be insulting to you, but this wasn't a really good movie. It just wasn't. I'm sorry. Uh, well, you're not being insulting because I'm not the, I'm not the credited editor on the, on that movie. But what I can tell you is the version that I worked on, uh, with Tony, the, uh, the director of The Rake, uh, is a completely different movie than the one that was released in June of this year. Completely different. Because as I was watching it, now I know there, like you said, that there's a big editing difference. I was watching The Rake and just kind of going, do something i mean th- there are things that happen in it but the movie at least the the cut i saw is only an hour 18 and it feels like there's only about a half hour a story is would that be about fair yeah their their version of the movie omits a couple of things that were really pointing to us it omits a lot of the character development it omits a lot of the scares it, it omits the visceral nature of of the ray creature uh it omits a lot of our it, it omits a lot of the style that we put to our version. It omits a really uh, a working knowledge of the mythology of the creature. The opening sequence of the film was actually, at least in, in, in our version, let me let me back this up. When I was when the film was removed from from our hands late 2015, the opening sequence, which is the 1995 uh, material, hadn't even been shot yet. When cutting the film, I only had about 70% of the puzzle. So it was always going to be my plan to work that material throughout the movie, which is one of the reasons that the entire second act is just a lot of dialogue and it's not particularly exciting. So that's a re- that's one of the reasons for the, uh, as you say, languid, you know, second half of the movie. That's not that's not what the writer and that's not what the director in, in, intended. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be critical of what the, um, the distributors did, but what I, what I will say is that, uh, their version of the movie is, is completely different than ours. What Tony originally wanted, what he pitched to me was a hybrid of, um, The Shining and Alien. So there's no doubt there was going to be a lot of character development and dialogue, and there were gonna be moments that were, there were, that were slower than normal that you're used to in a horror film. But because we had developed this tremendous sense of atmosphere and style, it was something that we thought audiences would overlook. But in their version, it's just rather dull. And, and, and I think the biggest thing, the movie's only an hour 18 with credits. And I'm just – even before – I mean, I knew had, having spoken to you that there was some sort of an editing kerfuffle, but I didn't know what. And even watching this – you could just tell this was not the way the director intended. I, I don't want to say incompetent, but you can tell this was almost like a work print, but a final work print. Does that make sense? In my opinion, it doesn't even qualify as that. The, the color is not particularly good. I don't even think it's. I don't even think it's completely finished. The, the the sound mixing is not particularly proficient. The score is the score is not what I wanted, but it's it's passable. And their edit. I don't know if you were paying attention to this, but this film is credited to Donnie Darko editor Sam Bauer. I can tell when a film has several different hands, and I know that Rake 
befell that same fate. I'm pretty confident that you have as many as four different box men working on, on this film, at least in terms of the, the edit. Um, it's difficult for me to determine exactly what Sam was doing, but a lot of what he was doing, I don't actually think that he, he put together the 95 stuff. I think that his work can best be seen during the first half of the sequence at the, uh, at the Volo house. But like I said, you had a lot of, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that you had a lot of cooks in the kitchen in this movie, a lot. And that's one of the reasons that the, the theatrical, or not the theatrical, but the, um, the, the quote unquote final version of, of, of Rake differs from what the, what the writer and what the director wanted, without question. Would, would that also have affected the ending? Because the ending is just kind of abrupt. A bunch of stuff happens and then the credits come up and you're like, oh, okay, I guess that was it. Let me let you in a little secret. I, when we were working on Rake, I was fairly certain that we were going to be removed. There's things that I didn't add to my version because I didn't want them to be replicated. I actually had a better ending and a better opening in mind, um, even with the the inclusion of the 95 material, which, like I said, I was never privy to. But that was the ending that we gave them when, when they, they took our, our, our final – well, not our final, but our, our last working pass. Tony and I had gotten to about a 3.0 over about a 5.0 edit, which means we were several variations away. Uh, we had only been on the movie for for a couple of months, but no, that was not the ending. That was not the ending that I had in my head. Um, although I do think that that was the editing. That was the uh, the ending that was featured in the in Jeremy Silva's screenplay. I knew I was never going to go with that ending initially, but but like I said, I I also knew that. Things were going to change in in terms of who was controlling the timeline. So, where do you put the rake in in your filmography? Do you even consider this a film that you one of your films? I know you were only the editor, but do you consider this one of your films or just a film you happen to work on? I'm credited at the end of the film in a very vague sense. Um, no, this is certainly not. I'm glad I'm actually not credited in the editorial staff because this is not – it's not representative of my work. Not because I think all of the editing is bad. There's a lot of things that they did I think are okay. But when I cut a movie, there, there's a lot more style. Rake lacks a lot of style. And it's, there's a lot of choppy editing in this, and I'm sure you can you, you, you can see. They also cut the hell out of my favorite performances. They just cut the shit out of them. Darcy Wood, who, uh, who can also be seen as Rebecca Wood in Skeletons in the Closet, uh, she has a – Far more significant role in this movie, and so does Stephen Brody, who can be seen in the new Puppet Master movie. L.A. cut the shit out of their roles. And let me tell you something interesting that they did, which I've never been able to figure out. Like I said, Tony always wanted this to be representative of The Shining, have a lot of connection to the um, Stanley Kubrick movie. Stephen King and a lot of critics were very, very critical of how Kubrick handled the Jack Torrance character by making him in the Kubrick film. They made um, he made Jack Torrance crazy almost immediately or at least off kilter. You know, you knew something was wrong with him. Now, in our version of the rake, Andrew, who is the uh, the male lead, Rachel Melvin's husband, is played by an actor, an L.A. actor named Joey Bacicci. In our version of the rake, we had him go crazy very subtly over the course of of the film. You know, in their version, and I'll tell you, people criticize this tremendously, he's an asshole almost immediately. L.A. basically sped up, you know, everything that we, we had, had tried to do, giving the film nuance and subtlety. And I suspect that's the difference between the two camps. 
It's also my opinion that the people that distributed this film, and I'm not talking about Sony, aren't as adept at making a horror movie as, as we thought. And I think that the end result that you've seen kind of speaks for itself. Do you know what I was actually thinking while I was watching this? This feels like 25-minute segment of an anthology film drug out to an hour 18. That's really what it felt like. It felt like this whole thing could have been done as part of another movie. Yeah, I've heard that criticism before. Yeah. Um, and like I said, it's because of the way that the, the, the film has been truncated. I, I don't understand what the rush was to get through it all. I mean, I realize they probably wanted this in a specific window. I'm not sure why. Even if we write off the rake, then there's still skeletons in the closet and high on the hog that are actually worth checking out, right? Or, or, <laughs> we, or, or do you want to tell my audience they should check out the rake just to see if they can see everything you just talked about. Well, you know, there's two reasons to watch The Rake. Three reasons. I have a lot of supremely gifted colleagues, and they have, and they did a tremendous job in The Rake. Production design by Sarah Sharp is astounding. The art direction, the costuming is, is first rate. Robert Patrick Stern, who also shot High in the Hog and Skeletons in the Closet. His cinematography is amazing. The problem is, is because of the way the movie was put through post, you don't get to see all the vibrant colors because it wasn't colored properly. I'm not going to blame anybody for that right now, but that's number one. There's also some really, really terrific performances, just not in this version of the movie. In our version of the movie, a lot of these actors shine. All of them do. And that's really, really unfortunate. But number two, or number three, or whatever the f number we're on, practical makeup effects with the rake creature in the end of the movie are astonishing. Oh, I have no complaints about that. I thought the, the practical, the monster at the end, I had no issues with. It was the movie itself I had issues with. And then number four, I have every intention, sometime probably next year, of finishing up what you could call a renegade version or renegade cut of this movie. Which I don't even think is technically legal, so I don't think anyone's ever going to see it. But I would like people to know that there is another version of this movie. I would love it if it would see the light of day. I don't think that's ever going to happen unless uh, Tony could convince the owners at some point to, to, to release it. But like I said, there is another version. So if people are disappointed by this and they, they think that uh, the filmmakers missed the boat, the truth is they didn't. They didn't. We were onto something here. And unfortunately, uh, Tony's vision and the vision of the rest of the filmmakers, specifically Rob, the DP, and, and Jeremy Silver, the writer, that vision is never going to be public anytime soon. But I'd like people to know that so maybe one one day they'll be looking through the zeitgeist and they'll say, hey, Rake, director's cut, coming in 20-whatever-the-damn-year-is. But we'll see, man. You know, we'll see. But but I, But I will say this, yeah, as of right now, my contribution to this movie is simply nothing but an asterisk and an addendum, you know. But like I said, for the audience, you can still go check out High on the Hog and Skeletons in the Closet, so. Yes, absolutely. Well, High on the Hog, not yet. At the time that this is, episode's gonna be coming out, it's not ready yet, but you can go watch the trailer on YouTube. How's that? Yes, yes, that movie is coming out very, very soon. Yep. So, Cecil, you not having seen this, but you want to, with it being out on VOD, are you gonna go buy this now? Or at least rent it. But I mean, I'll put it in the, in the pile of, uh, you know, movies that I have to watch. I mean, I've seriously, I have only seen four movies from 2018 so far this year and the year is almost over. 
So I've got a lot of catching up to do. Well, maybe stop with that whole life thing and start watching more movies. Being a parent is and running your own business is exhausting. Hey, I used to do it. I was a parent, and I was also one of the biggest video bootleggers. I should probably not say more about that. <laughs> Peter, you, since you've seen the movie, with it coming out, you going to pick up the DVD at least? Yeah, I'm going to try. I always try to buy uh, movies that I've enjoyed. It just always depends on on my finances. I I am but but a mere laborer man just trying to get through life. Hey, I'm broke too, so shut up. Yeah, well, fuck you. No, fuck you. Fuck you, man. No, no, screw you sideways, man. Yeah, up yours with a twirling lawnmower. Why don't you go piss up an iceberg? <laughs> What I'm saying is, if you guys liked what what you heard Ben talking about, and you like these types of movies, I really do think you should check out Skeletons in the Closet. It's available now on VOD. He mentioned in the interview that it was coming to VOD, but we recorded that a week earlier. So, it's on VOD now. It's going to be having the the DVD and Blu-ray releases by the end of the year. I think it's a movie worth checking out, even though I agree with Pete that editing in the dismantler segment really did bother me although as as you guys heard i did kind of confront ben about that a little bit go and check out skeletons in the closet and pay for it try not to bootleg it because this is a low budget we should support low budget cinema yes you want to bootleg a universal movie or a fox movie that's one thing so on that note cecil who does not do his homework where can he be found oh shut up <laughs> you can find me at goodbadflix.com as well as goodbadflicks on YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, Facebook, and 1201beyond.com. Peter, where can people find you e-bagging for money the same as I do? Oh, good Lord. Uh, there's a lot of places on Twitter and Cinematica, YouTube, the Cinemasochist, Facebook, the Cinemasochist, on, on 1201beyond.com. Uh, and of course, the the main center, the central location of e-bagging, which is Patreon at Cinematica, where you should send me your money. Money me. Me need money bad. Thank you. And you can find me at 1201beyond.com. We have a Patreon as well. If everybody who listens to this show donates $1 a month, I could actually pay my car insurance and eat in the same month. So come on, help out a little bit. But other than that, you can contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. You should go to iTunes and all the other Amazon and all the other VOD places. Check out Skeletons in the Closet. And then we'll have more on High on the Hog once that actually comes out. And then the rake, as you heard Ben talk about, maybe check it out just to see if you can see how screwed up it is. But it's we're, we're warning you now, it's not a very good movie, so just deal with it. So keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night.
Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.